is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Brittany Hartley, how are you? I'm so good. You, my friend, became a grandpa again. Grandpa for the second time around. For this time a baby time. girl. Yeah, Elena So we are... Around podcasting but life is still going on outside of the podcast and number three comes along sometime in the next uh, couple of weeks congratulations how does it feel um feels amazing being a grandparent is all the good things of parenting with none of the bad yeah <laughs> so i love it well congratulations and then people who are watching this is our new time for podcasting we'll be podcasting every tuesday at one for the foreseeable future we have a yep. lot of guests and cool things that we want to cover this year and we're super excited to have um a guest today and i've known him for a couple of years now i can't even remember i'll have to ask him how we initially met i think i just saw what he was doing online and i knew that he was doing really interesting things with religion and spirituality, and I'm super excited. But before we jump into that, we did have a follow-up question from our last podcast that I wanted to ask you, Bill. So last podcast, we talked a lot about spiritual bypassing and all the different kinds of spiritual bypassing. And someone asked, is faith always a spiritual bypass? It's kind of like a follow-up to the question, is faith a virtue? Which, um, you know, people in religious spaces and non-religious spaces will debate from time to time. Um, so what do you think about that? I'm just going to lob that at you. Yeah, I think faith, the word faith has a lot of baggage to it. And in the context we came from, right, faith is to hope in things uh, that you can't see, but which are true, right? So if we just discard the word faith for a moment and work with that other word, hope. I think it is good to hope. I think life has plenty of ups and downs. And I think that some humans uh, have extreme challenges that are lengthy. Uh, they're difficult. And I think if we only perceive that in any horrible moment, that only horrible moments are to come, we lose hope and we end up adding to our own suffering. Um, so I think it is good to be optimistic and to hope that good things happen, even in the midst that bad things are occurring. So for instance, let's say I get diagnosed with cancer tomorrow. Um, I would want to try to hope in the fact that it's going to get cured or that uh, we're going to resolve that in some other way, other than I'm going to die a year later from, from cancer. And so hope uh, to me is not always spiritual bypassing, but I think, I think if you, pretend things are going to get better. So for instance, I lose my job and I have faith that God's going to give me a new job, but I have, but my faith keeps me from sitting with all the work that needs to be done in order to get there. Then yeah, I think it can be something that does spiritual bypassing. So to answer the question directly, I think it can be either, or it really mm -hmm. depends on your mindset 
uh, and it really depends on how you utilize it. But I think to be hopeful in the in the midst of bad things happening uh, is a good thing, uh, as long as it doesn't stop you from putting the work in, which is what yeah. we talked about, right? Putting the work in to to actually get your life to a better place. Yeah, I think if you if you redefine faith as hope, or even like making like like humans are amazing because we have a vision of something that's not real yet, and we can work towards it. Like that's an amazing thing about being a human. So if you define faith as as hope or uh, visualizing something that's not there yet that you're working towards, we all do those things. Everybody does that. It's a good thing. It's what makes us uniquely human. Um, I think whenever you do faith as the tool that you're using to suspend critical thinking, I think that's where that gets into spiritual bypass. Like, I don't have to think about this because I have this little faith tool and now I can just go around having to think about it. I think that's where it gets tricky. Yeah, which which essentially says that if your faith allows you to hold on to confirmation bias, then it is bypassing the real work that needs to be done. Right. Yeah. Love okay. It. So for today, um, I had this quote that I came across this week from Richard Rohr that said, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And so that's just really what we're trying to do on this podcast and really a great intro to my friend, Jared Anderson, um, who's a chaplain in Salt Lake City. And the reason that I really love his voice in this space is he's not just criticizing um, religion or organized religion or certain systems. He does have criticisms of certain systems, but he really gets into the job of the practice of making it better. And that's mm -hmm. what I really love about his work in this space. So let's bring him on. Jared Anderson, how are you, my friend? Doing pretty well, good to be on here. Okay, so I think I would, for the people who don't know you and the work that you're doing, I would love to just you know, we could do like a two hour story of your faith journey. We could do a 30 second, but maybe like a couple minutes long, just kind of where you've been and just the transitions that you've made along the way in your faith journey. Yeah, one thing I'm deeply grateful for is that I've been able to maintain my appreciation for the human experience and a really rich approach to the human experience throughout my faith journey. Uh, the super brief version of it um, had a pretty hard childhood and there was some spiritual and religious abuse um, along with the physical, emotional and other. And frankly, I'm very surprised that religion and spirituality was a resource and uh, comfort. I mean, even though my abusive stepdad would literally uh, just to be very direct, um, he would like handcuff me and my brother together and then unhandcuff us to go to church. Like that's very, that's very weird. And it could have easily gone to religious trauma, but it never did. Um, religion and spirituality were always very, very strong, positive resources for me. Um, I was a very earnest member of the LDS church all growing up, uh, moved around a lot. Military family was actually raised in the Palmyra stake. And looking back, I have a very strong relationship to imagination and to practice. And that has carried me through my different mythologies, my different um, escapes. And so through my undergraduate, I believed every single word of Mormonism. Um, I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis on Joseph Smith and his study and use of languages. And then I went to UNC Chapel Hill and studied under Bart Ehrman. And instantly, I figured out that everything I had learned growing up was wrong. 
Um, I've always updated very quickly. Uh, Brett, you and I have talked about the fact that I think we're both creative theologians, you know, whether or not we were aware of that. And so functionally through my PhD program in religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill, I broke down and rebuilt Mormonism, which has been incredibly useful, especially um, working on the Engaging Gospel Doctrine podcast, which I just put down. We can talk about that in a bit if you want. Um, and so through my comprehensive exams, I believed in the fundamentals of Mormonism, you know, like heaven is real, prophets are real, revelation is real, just fundamentally not in the way that we think. And my big transition was in 2009 when I came out here to Salt Lake to teach, to teach world religions at Westminster College. And immediately seeing the big picture, literally the global historical picture, I instantly or very quickly that first semester that I taught it, I saw that religion is powerful and religion is human. So from that point, I, I became an agnostic. And so for a couple of years, I did that whole try to help from the inside. Um, and so I was active for about four years as an agnostic. Um, and then I taught, I designed and taught a future of religion course in 2013. And that is where this vision of what is a better way, you know, what might be a better way to move forward. And it's, it was very gratifying because um, I, as you know, I barely graduated with my divinity degree, my master of divinity and my capstone project, the final assignment that I turned in, sent you a copy, was the, the researched scientifically based culmination of my insights in 2013. And so 2013, even as an agnostic is where I felt a very strong call to ministry, a call to my vocation, which is. I want everyone to benefit from the evolved resources that we have, because um, as I imagine you discuss, humans and religion co-evolved. Um, and so we are, we are very sensitive to the ingredients and the resources of religion. And so whether or not we are religious, we are sensitive to narrative, to personification, to ritual, to structure, to rites of passage, to institutional, um, to hierarchies, to all these things. And I would, I will, I'm sure we'll discuss it. You can't get away from that. And so my passion is instead of throwing it in the garbage, I want to pivot. I want to make good use of all these things. And so after a second divorce, I became a chaplain. And so I worked in hospice for five years, uh, prison for five years, just barely came from the prison actually. Um, and I've worked at the hospital for two years. And, um, Everything so far is good for me to be a military chaplain, which um, hopefully will happen in the next few weeks. And I am going to be the only chaplain of my flavor in the entirety of the armed forces. So that's, that's its own thing. And it's pertinent to our conversation that I could not get into the military as a humanist. Um, the, the US military is currently in a complex relationship where military personnel are allowed to be humanists and pagans and different things, but there are no chaplains for um, a percentage of those military personnel. Um, and so I had to get double endorsed as um, unity, which is new thought. 
And so I will be the only unity chaplain in the entire armed forces, which actually I think is a very beneficial thing. Um, one of my, we can circle back around to this, um, but one of my core senses of vocation is that I want to infiltrate systems of power and privilege and subvert them with well-being. What else am I supposed to do with this body? Um, and so I am very much a subversion, a like appropriation in the good way, as far as like taking the resources, the language, the system, and then pivot it and shift it. And um, I, again, I imagine we'll circle back, but I think that is the most effective. I think we need a variety of approaches, but I think overall the most effective way to effect change and improve things is to work with them as they are and then pivot them and move them. Um, I'll close for now with this. Like when I teach prison volunteers, and I like working at the prison because it's, I call it life skills with catastrophic consequences, because you just have the institutional systemic injustice, human nature issues at a really, really intense level. And so I tell the volunteers, I say, I want you to think outside the box, work within the box and change the box as possible. And I think that is a formula that can work for anyone. But our, our privilege, our, like the degree to which we will be able to think outside, work inside and change is going to differ, you know, based on all sorts of intersectional privilege, institutional factors and so forth. So that's a little bit. So I am now a, I mean, I, I playfully call myself a lifeist and I also call myself a humanist mystic. So I have no supernatural beliefs, like none. Um, I, I call myself a devout agnostic certain theist, um, which again, we can come back to, but I believe in a nutshell that life is a really big deal and we have to show up for it and show up for each other. So that's like my spirituality in a nutshell. Yeah, there was a lot there that I want to unpack. One of the interesting things about your faith journey is that some people, you know, let, you know, if you're faith journey is a kind of ship, you know, they'll have times where like that ship sunk and they have nothing and they have just like a life raft and they have to rebuild. And the interesting thing about your faith journey is that you are always tinkering. And mm -hmm. so you never had like a big, you know, you've told me before that, you know, you've never had a big faith crisis because you were always tinkering with your ship as you went. And so, you know, your story was always every year it was changing in some really fundamental way, which was really interesting. Um, the ship yeah. of Theseus. Yes. <laughs> as, vision, as vision talks about, you know, like, is it is it the same ship? Like, yeah. Yes. You've been tinkering on the same ship. I don't think it's the same ship anymore. <laughs> no. um, so I want to go back to we've used the term religion a few times. Um as, as we're talking about how do we, which is what Bill and I really love to do. We love to say, we don't have any supernatural beliefs, but hey, there's a lot of tools here in religion. Let's dig those out. We're all about that work. Um, but I think it would be best if we just kind of stopped here and just said, how do you define religion generally? Yeah, important topic. Um, one of my favorite uh, concepts is a conversation. Like ev everything is a conversation. Um, I've had the privilege of studying 12 languages. I've studied linguistics. I really like the metaphor of, of translation. And so um, 
I mean, th this was exactly what my final paper was, is like, what, what is religion? Um, and my, my go-to world religion definition is a religion is a cultural technology system of interconnected beliefs and rituals in the context of community with reference to transcendent reality. Um, and of course, so that it's the transcendent reality that's the really important part. And what you alluded to it earlier, like what makes humans distinct as best as we can tell is that we seem to be the only animals who can imagine things that can't exist. Um, like other animals can imagine things that they can't see, you know, like the cat sitting at the, at the wall, at the hole can like, in a, in a sense, like imagine that mouse somewhere and the raven can imagine a tool, you know, and like if we, if the animals use tools, they're imagining things, but we seem to be the only animals that can imagine things that cannot exist in our current world. And then we make them real. And so I, I argue that all, and this is one of my more controversial beliefs that all cultural institutions are functional religions. And so I use the term explicit religion and implicit religion and religion is a constellation of institutions. So I, I find it, um, it's generally agreed on, I think, that spirituality is, is the individual thing and religion is the collective thing. And I find that to be useful. But then there's our own individual approach and relationship to religion. So when I'm doing spiritual assessments, I will always ask, what is your relationship to blank? You know, what is your relationship to God? What is your relationship to your religion? What is your relationship to your faith? Um, so there's no, there's no easy, clean um, definition of religion, but that's that, and again, like interconnected system of meaning and groups and rituals and beliefs and so forth. Um, I do think that what makes most religions distinctive is a comprehensiveness. Um, and the, and then the nature of the transcendent reality, but in what are commonly accepted as religions, there's a huge range of what, you know, what is transcendent reality? Is it God? Is it gods? Is it ancestors? Is it spirits? Is it, you know, whatever. And so I, th I think it's the range, but I think what makes religion as we think of it distinctively powerful is because it is a comprehensive system that takes all the aspects of being human and puts it into one coherent narrative and structure. And to anticipate probably what we're gonna come back around to, um, I think that is why religions in general, like religions are uniquely powerful at a general level because we have to do something like camp is a really fun example that a lot of us relate to, whether it's like a band camp or just a summer camp or a drama camp or a military school or a sports camp. These are like religious experiences, like that level of intensity. We've all had those experiences or even drama, you know, like I love doing drama in school. Like it is when we opt into this kind this level of comprehensiveness that we have this ecstatic transcendent, you know, Durkheim has comments about that. Um, but the distinctive thing is that religion is designed as a comprehensive system that people can then say, how much of it do I want to partake of? You know, for example, and this is, you know, cult strength religion, all religions have a degree of tolerance 
of what is allowed, you know, that opt-in versus opt-out experience. So for example, Catholicism is a very interesting example where Catholicism allows for everything from a very intense sect or literally being a nun or priest to being an atheist who happens to have been baptized as a baby. Whereas Islam allows for a different range of things. And then like, so each religion has these rules, you know, or agreement, not exactly agreements, but the system. So one thing, quick comment about systems theory, uh, Dan Dennett has a fantastic summary where he says religion exists for itself. So all ideologies, including religion, reproduce in the human brain. And so they are literally competing for brain space. And that's super important to understand that all systems, including religion, are in like natural selective, like natural selective evolutionary competition. Like a virus. I mean, Dan Dennett talks about it like a virus, like it's a virus. It's fighting for. Yes. Yeah. yeah, except of course, religion is much more comprehensive than the virus. I mean, it is the virus that infects the entire anthill, you know, so then it become it, then it becomes the anthill. But yeah, I'll, I, I think, I mean, Dawkins, I'm not the biggest fan of him, but this idea of a meme, like a meme gene parallel, I think is useful. So the particular ingredients of, a, of an ideology are competing at that like gene meme level but um, systems theory is one of my favorite um, framings and systems will fight for their own survival. And so all of like, and this is this scales. So at every single level, we have the idea, we have the relationship, we have the individual person. And so an example that I like talking about with systems theory is that of a bad marriage. It's, it's a weird experience where even if both in, or the individuals in a marriage agree it's a bad idea, there's this weird force that's like keeping them in that in that bad marriage, you know, whether it's it's social pressure as part of it. Um, but it's important to understand that religions, and again, all cultural institutions, all ideologies, are these systems that behave as if they are conscious and they are fighting for their own survival. And I think that is very it's it's both sobering and empowering as we as individuals work to navigate within those systems. And I know I lay out a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to pick that apart. Bill, do you have some thoughts before I go? Yeah, a couple things. You mentioned you don't believe in the supernatural at all, neither do I. <clears throat> and you mentioned being a mystic, which I also relate to. And But I think people come to that juxtaposition kind of wondering. In, in other words, um, being a mystic means there are, at least for me, again, you can define it however you want. At least for me, it means there are phenomena happening in the world that are mysterious. There is the unknown. There are things that happen that still give me awe and wonder. And um, I sometimes have difficulty relating to somebody who does believe in the supernatural because in their mind, being a mystic means you are open to the supernatural. There are things happening in the universe that just can't be explained. And while you and I probably go, well, it can't be explained, doesn't mean it doesn't have an explanation. I just wonder if maybe you can flesh out those two ideas of no supernatural and you're a mystic. No, I, I appreciate that because I, um, so the, the standard def or like kind of a religious scholar definition of a mystic is one who has direct experience with the divine. You know, the, 
And so, and that is how I define myself. Um, so one really interesting, so in brief, I hack my own psychology. So I have literally invented my own pantheon. I, they're illustrated and stuff. I, I wish I wish I had them printed out, but um, you've seen them, right, Britt? Um, so what I, and I, I recommend this as like a wellness exercise. So I, I invite people to say, what are your highest values? Like most of us can talk about our, our values, right? So one of my highest, highest values is elegant, efficient approaches to well-being. Like that's a general statement of what I'm, what I'm going for with everything I do is I'm looking for elegant, efficient approaches to well-being. Um, and so what I did is I broke those down to a pantheon of four. So there is life who's like that wild chaos, life, death does not care about you. Um, she's the broader system. And then there's elegance, who's my main goddess. And elegance is how you take the chaos of life and you build it into a beautiful structure, civilization, cathedral, stained glass window, civilization in brief. And then, and they're a pair, like a, you know, a divine pair. And then I have expedience, who is like a special forces first responder type. And I, I literally do have all these illustrated out in an amazing level. I just I just sent them to Bill, so I'll have him put them up here in a yeah, second. You will, you will love these. So expedience is what is needed in the moment. Respond in the moment. And I, I literally want to be a special forces chaplain. So I'm like I'm living all of these things. And then the final one is integrity. And expedience and integrity are a divine pair. Now, here's the wild thing, Bill. I have spiritual experiences with this pantheon like i and it's, it's an interesting exercise because one of um there's a really great book called how god becomes real about like the psychology of believing in um in unseen agents and part of the paper that i just wrote is looking at this continuum of religion war military sports and fandoms and so most people's belief in God, it's an invisible friend that they believe is real. And then fandoms and sports are very interesting because they are a category where people know they are pretend, but they don't treat them like they're pretend. They are pretend systems that they behave as, the, as if they're real. And a favorite definition of religious- Bill, Bill pretends the Browns are going to win and never is real. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my favorite um, framings around religious practice is serious play. So religion is serious play, individual and collective. And so my psychology is such that, like I've always been a very imaginative person. I talked to my stuffed animals as a child. And so my psychology is such that when I design something, I can inhabit it in a way that is real for me. Um, maybe I shouldn't mention my dad's schizoaffective, but no, I, I, I do, I do think I'm close to that. You know, like I never lose touch with reality other than Mormonism. Um, but the way, like the way that it's matured is I can literally design my gods and goddesses and have a personal relationship with them to the degree that it actually challenges me. Um, like I was literally praying to expedience or elegance during one of the hardest moments of my life this past year. And she, she answered 
like I, I have these conversations. Does that um, does that make sense? So it is functionally, it's like a an imaginative play, but I experience it at, as a rigor. It, it's a it's a pretty nice sweet spot where I never lose touch with reality. Like I'm always aware, you know, that I'm the one who invented these pantheons, but I I, I seriously engage enough that they. I experience them as responding to me because I can, and it's just. Do you guys want these images on the screen? Let's put them up here. <clears throat> yep. So that's, that's life. So again, you see that balance of like life and death, birth and decay, predator and prey. And then this is elegance who would like the ideal use of everything. I wonder why that's not. Yeah. I don't know. Something and then my images, but yeah, there's one. Yep. So there's expedience. You kind of get that vibe of like, I joke, not joke that statues of patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, so again, like showing up as things break down as you needed. And then integrity is like rebuilding the new. And um, so again, like expedience and uh, integrity have to work together. And yes, that not coincidentally is like an idealized version of me. Because, ooh. There's a, yeah, there's, a, there's the there's the one that doesn't give you any good results. Yep, there's another another good. I could, a couple of one or two weren't quite working, but people could get yeah. the gist. So you've got these ideals, these values that um, that you put a lot of, uh, lest I say, meditative energy into, and you feel like you get results back, but you also don't believe there's um, a, a supernatural force in the universe that's giving those to you. That rather. Um, maybe perhaps your brain or the interconnected universe with us is just doing its thing. But the nice, the nice thing about it, and this is the elegance of it is that these are real principles, you know? Mm, and and yeah. I think that is why um, I started working on this idea of a pantheon as personified virtues um, in 2016. And I, I think like, I like this idea of being in relationship to your values I think it will, like, I'm always trying to figure out what will work for the maximum number of people. And so I think this idea of like being in relationship with your values, being, I have another project with like virtues and vices and so forth. Um, so for example, if someone is not very imaginative, we can ask them like, who, what is your highest value? Like, let's say someone says it's a uh, diligence and you could say who in your life represents diligence for you. And they could do that or they could like do cool art of diligence like it, i i'm a deep believer in really meeting people where they are and kind of like tweaking and finessing things so that um they have the best outcome what's super interesting to me is that you know we have all of this um you know psychology and history and religious history that says that when we, um, you know, codify values and make rituals and when you do all these things with religion, um, it's a it's a tool and your subconscious begins to really talk to you. Right. And so people who experience really deep prayer, contemplative practices, um, even though the gods are all different, um, experience this kind of conversation and contemplation that you're talking about. And so what's really interesting about you is as you're studying religion and realizing, hey, maybe we are. There's so many gods here. There's so much history behind how we're kind of, we seem to be projecting this. I'm going to, rather than just say, this is all, you know, poppycock, we're all making this up. I'm just going to make the best gods that I can think of 
and hack into this really cool tool, which is the ability for your subconscious to talk to yourself when you are in relationship with some kind of codified system of values. And so it's just, it's a really um, unique approach that I don't, that I don't see all the time, especially in agnostic and atheist circles. Um, and so it, it really is a kind of hacking that you've done where you're trying to get all of the benefits of a contemplative relationship with the divine without the supernatural. You're going there to play, but you're getting real benefits. And I just think that that's super interesting. It's important to say, I appreciate that. It's important to add that I wouldn't necessarily wish my brain chemistry on anyone mm. um, because it's incredibly expensive. Um, and the like one thing I think that we need to take very, very seriously around cultural ideologies. Um, it's really funny. I, I was asked to apply to be on the humanist. Yeah, there's integrity. Um, and so that's like a cathedral fortress thing. Um, but one, one thing I think we need to take very, very seriously, um, and this gets back to your question about spiritual bypassing, is we, our brains are so expensive that they have to be efficiency. Like we have to be efficient, you know, because again, like our, our brains are so, so expensive. And so I think we need to take very, and this is a problem with uh, progressive intellectuals, is I think that we get really um, uh, kind of like arrogant and presumptuous, or, we, or some of us can sometimes. Bill, you wouldn't know anything about that, right? Not, not about you, but just like the, the, the conversational circles. Um, I think that we can get very, um, you know, arrogant and dismissive around the embodied lived experience that we all we all are in. And one of my favorite things about doing end of life work, which I've done for five years, uh, my current hospital job is I'm called in for deaths. So um, and it's worth noting that I specifically sought out end of life work because I don't believe in the afterlife. And so that's been a, an interesting um, high investment practice. Um, but I, th I think that we need like one of my vows is to never like um, break it open, build it better is one of my fundamental things. And my brain always does it. My brain is always breaking everything down to the fundamentals and rebuilding it. But I can't escape that. It's just what my brain does. And so I might as well make good use of it. I'm also very um, humble and compassionate around what are all these systems um, doing for people. And one thing that is poignant around ex-Mormons is, and I imagine you talk about this in the podcast as well, is because at a cult strength level, everything is all entangled. When the, when the religious belief goes, everything shatters, including belief in marriage, including belief in, in everything. Um, and so I think that we need to be very sensitive to um, that structural framework. And this is why I really enjoy the description of spirituality, religion, ideology, all of this as like an operating system or you know this technology that works in certain ways. And so I think the productive conversation that I want to be having and that I'm glad you're having on this podcast is what is the function of what you're doing? And this becomes, so I have six words that are the answer to any, everything. Can I share? Whenever so, anything comes at you, this is the right answer always. Compassionate, curious, acceptance. That is always the right answer. So accept what's real, like don't fight it, like discern what's real. 
uh, be curious about it. You know, like what what further information do I need to know around the situation? And then be compassionate. You know, like okay, what what is this like warm, constructive engagement? And um, I I this goes all the way down for me, like for my ethics, interreligious ethics. My final paper was arguing a compassionate approach to the death penalty. So I mean, it, you can use this in lots of different ways. And then the way to follow through is to remain clear, gentle, firm. And so, like with those mindsets, you can you can approach almost almost anything. Um, but I think it's very so. I'm I'm always looking at how what is this doing for someone. So, and what I love is that no matter what you're doing, if I can say, what are you getting out of this? That is a completely open question that you can answer anything to. You can say utter misery because I am acting out my intergenerational trauma. It, it doesn't need to be a, if I said like, what benefit are you getting? It's gonna prime your brain to be thinking about the positives. But if I clean it and say, um, what are you getting out of this? It opens up that curious, more neutral part of people's brains where they're like, man, I guess not like, I guess I'm just making myself miserable. So what were the I, first three again, Jared? What was that? What were the first three again? Um, compassionate, curious acceptance. And then I wanted to follow up on this comment here. This is a weekly listener that we have always gives great questions. And, um, you know, he says, uh, it sounds like you're talking about archetypes. So what would be the benefit of, you know, some people do this work really with, um, you know, something like tarot cards, which can be used with like just Jungian archetypes, or I have some up here, some Jungian cards, um, mm -hmm. where there's no belief that the universe is, is spinning the cards, but it's just kind of this, it just opens up this relationship with yourself, knowing, pa recognizing patterns. And you're really just playing with the hacking of your brain that if I look for this pattern, I'm going to notice this pattern more in, in my day. Um, and so what would be the difference or what would be the benefits between um, doing something where you're doing like a, a tarot kind of thing where the archetypes are already there versus really naming and visualizing your own core values. What would be kind of like the benefit of what you're doing versus people who just go through tarot right. cards without the supernatural? And this is where the framing of conversation becomes helpful again. And I think about the metaphor of um, what kind of house do you want to live in? Um, do you want to just like, get a house if anyone is so lucky and you know in in this market like do you want it already built you know do you want to build it yourself do you want to remodel it do you want to break it down and so we are we are always in this conversation of how much okay so first it's kind of like the reminder there we are all not we but you know like all mormons are cafeteria mormons the anthropological term for this as i imagine you're familiar is lived religion so all of us always have something in our head where idiolect is a really fun term. So like idiolect means it's smaller than dialect. It's the absolute extension of dialect. It is like your own personal language. So all of us think something different. So archetype, let's talk like father, mother, love, death, life, all these things. The, getting to the core, what does this mean to you? So I kind of want to go underneath your question and say whether whether or not you are using tarot archetypes or Jungian archetypes or Christian archetypes. Um, I gave a uh, inmate this beautiful deck of Hindu deities today. 
Um, you know, I like really naming the fact that even if we are using the inherited cultural language, we're still making it our own. Um, and I, I like that reminder. So what I want to do is I want to empower people and help them celebrate and have that curiosity of what is my relationship, you know, to all of these things. And no matter what your worldview is, I hope that all of us can get a little bit more curious and open around the question, like, could, could this be useful for me? Um, because I've rebranded my work from religious humanism to like life devoted wellness work. Um, and my current branding has like no religious language. Um, but I personally like find it to be tremendously useful. Um, and I know we're going to talk about the whole God question. Like I, these, like the languaging around spirituality and religion is so much older than any of us that even like we're not, it is so much more effective to pivot it than to try to invent something new. Um, like I have studied people who have tried to invent new things. And um, like the Mormon Transhumanist Association is a very interesting example where the Mormon Transhumanist Association, so transhumanism as technology is God fulfilling the hopes of religion through technology. Um, and the Mormon Transhumanist, shout out, association is like one of the most successful transhumanist organizations in the entire world. And similarly, the most successful humanist organizations are the ones piggybacking on religion, which is super interesting. So the largest humanist, the largest explicit humanist organization is the Unitarian Universalist Humanists. Um, and then even the Humanist Society, you know, I am endorsed by the Humanist Society. That is how I do weddings and funerals. Um, it was piggybacking on some secular Quakers. So I just think that we need to be very humble and very open and very, you know, just have that grateful relationship. Now, if you personally are allergic to religion, spirituality, whatever, take care of yourself. Like we all, but at the same time, I don't think that we should live in that traumatic reactive relationship. So again, we have that conversation where it's like, how does this all feel to me? Where am I, where am I at right now? And if we could have some playful curiosity around, oh, like, I don't, like, could I pick back up, you know, something? And then I love this framing of like, what is useful for you? Um, rather than getting caught up on like what's accurate or what's true because our brains are designed to put us in delusion. Like um, perception is um, hallucination and memory fiction. You know, there, there is nothing but fiction that we can react to. I had some follow-up things unless you had something, Bill. I've got a question, but I'll yeah. wait for, I'll wait for a moment if you, if, if I can ask it now, if you want me to. I just want to do a follow-up on um, real quick on what, uh, for the people who are really um, following this conversation, I just want to go back and kind of define things. So what is humanism? What is religious humanism, especially? And then what did you see as kind of the weaknesses of that group that that kind of caused you to say, I think we can, I'm going to expand this, you know, this isn't, this isn't totally it, you know, what was that kind of define that for us? Yeah, and it, it is kind of funny because um, in my own journey, I went, um, and I just want to say to the listeners, like, it takes a while to digest the way that I communicate, and I understand that. So this is recorded. You can listen to it again and again. Um, I went from 
envisioning the moment where I take off my military cross and put on the happy human, you know, pin as a military chaplain. Uh, the Canadian Armed Forces just had their first humanist chaplain, and she has the little, the little happy human, which is the symbol of humanism. And I've gotten to the point where I could happily wear the cross um, for the rest of my career. And so humanism is a human approach to life. And one of the deep ironies around humanism is that every single person on the planet right now is a humanist. Like every single person on the planet, every single human on the planet is a humanist, is an implicit humanist because our structures of civilization are humanistic. So governments are humanistic, some more than others. I mean, like the Taliban is not like the most humanistic, um, you know, government system. But the idea of economics, um, politics, the um, human rights, education, um, consumerism, like these things that are absolutely pervasive, they're like plastic in the oceans and in our body, um, like all of these are humanist institutions and ideologies. So every single person on the planet is an implicit humanist, but very, very few on the order of tens of thousands are explicit humanists. And so one of the things that most interests me is the fact that like, you know, the LDS church, which is a um, unethically successful business, you know, it, it's very, very interesting, you know, this like, why are the most powerful institutions in the entire world, like the military industrial complex, and this is one reason why I want to be a military chaplain, because a military chaplain plays at the intersection of goodness gracious. You know, you have religion, you have nationalism, you have politics, you have the military industrial complex. And so getting back to humanism, I have noticed as I have studied the history of humanism and humanist organizations, um, there is no explicit humanist organization that can play in the game. Like if, if, we're, if we're sports teams, um, like the humanist team cannot compete with even pathetic little like middle school religion teams. Like religion is such like because what I'm what I'm designing functionally with life devoted, or what I'm you know playing with is what can, and this is literally the subtitle of the paper I just wrote, can we create religious strength secular institutions? And the answer is yes, we have them. You know, like the military is, you know, a religion strength humanist institution. But then we get into these, like, I mean, one of, one of the most powerful gods is nationalism. And like American nationalism, um, it is this like quasi-Christian, but like Robert Bella talks about it, you know, it's civil, civil religion or civic religion. It's very interesting how if you look at the court system, if you look at law enforcement, if you look at prison, if you look at education, if you look at these um, like very strong implicit religions, you, there's a reason we dress up as monks for graduation. I mean, in part because our academic institutions literally evolved from monasteries. And so one thing that we don't appreciate is that most elements of civilization are directly descended from religious institutions. So this is why, this is why I playfully say that I don't believe in atheists. 
So then humanism, there's just not enough structure. There's not enough bringing people together. There's not the rituals. There's not the, there's not a holy book. Even if you were making one up, there's just not enough for them to play in these big spaces. Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, There's not enough to motivate. Mm. Um, Like I I would put as like the actual issue. So religion is so powerful. And so there's, there's religion in general, and what's interesting that um, Mormon and ex-Mormon audiences don't understand because like Mormonism is a cult strength religion. And so like if you're raised Presbyterian or Methodist or Reformed Jewish, or it's pretty chill, you know, it's like, cool, nice, like there's a God or whatever. And I go to church sometimes. Um, there's a book called Soul Searching that actually maps this out in a sociological, you know, this really big sociological study. Um, but current versions of humanism don't have enough stickiness or structure or resources. Um, and then we get into things that are called high cost, like high cost religions of which, you know, Mormonism is in, is in that category. And this is why I like looking at high cost fandoms, you know, things like sports, um, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, comic book culture, Comic-Con, you know, so you you look, I, again, I look at the function of things, the schematics of things, the patterns, rather than what what does something look like. Um, to be very succinct before we move forward, um, I think the only kind of humanism that can compete with religion will be a religion, uh, because nothing else can get that, can that level. And this is why I like sports and military as familiar examples of things that like we know are pretend, but it's a matter of life and death, military more than sports, um, obviously, but sports are still, you know, a matter of life and death. So the, the current familiar form of humanism is secular humanism. Um, most humanist organizations in the United States and Western culture in general are like fighting for the legal rights of non-religious people. Um, the satanic, the um, satanic temple is hilarious and awesome, and it is humanism with snark. So the satanic temple, um, they don't believe in the devil, um, neither does Levian Satanism. We can just bracket that for a moment. Um, but the satanic temple is just hilarious. You know, they are using the name, the the idea of Satan. They like just, meth- while you're thinking about this, they just did this thing in Texas where Texas passed this law that said. If you get a donation of a sign that says, in God we trust, you have to post it. And so the Satanist organization put, in God we trust, in Arabic, which has kind of a different look to it. It has a different feel. And then, you know, then you have to post it. And they're just, they are snarky. (laughs) Yeah. So historically, most humanism was religious humanism. So there are the humanist manifestos, like Humanist Manifesto 1 was in the 30s two was in the 80s, three um, was early 2000s, I think three, four, somewhere in there. And it's been interesting to see to see the shift because number one, it was mostly like Unitarian Universalists. I want to say John Dewey um, was on there. I think Isaac Asimov was one of the signers of the second one. Um, the second one was very much an optimistic, like let's have the entire world work together. You know, here's a rallying cry. And then three is more like a here are principles that all humans can get behind, but it's gotten a lot weaker. And this is one of the paradoxes that I play with, as you know, 
is this um, this dance and this balance because I like the metaphor of the Olympics as well because Olympic Olympic training is unethical like if you're doing anything other than like Olympics so it's this question of like as humans what level of rigor do we need individually to accomplish our to be to feel fulfilled um, and one one fundamental problem is that natural selection selects for survival not thriving so if we feel like our lives are in danger we're super super motivated but as soon as we don't feel like our lives are in danger we're just we're just going to chill and again there are evolutionary systemic reasons for that um, we can come back to this but i think the root of most evil since you didn't ask is individual overwhelm in the context of systemic oppression like i'll unpack that for a second so systems theory teaches that people are the symptoms, not the problems. And I really believe that most awful things that we do as human beings, including like rape, murder, and domestic abuse, and so forth, racism, are like, we're just overwhelmed. Like most of us want to be good, but when we are confronted by the actual work of actually being good, our brains just fritz and we get overwhelmed. And when we get overwhelmed, we fall back on our cultural conditioning and we are all embedded in these overwhelmingly powerful systems of global exploitation and oppression, the consumerist death cult being the biggest one. You know, this idea that we need to like all, like we are in a death camp, like the entire, you know, consumerist economic system is a death camp. Um, and I'm, I'm being intentionally provocative here, but it's true, like that's, that's like all labor is selling your body. You know, just it's, I think that we need to reckon with this stuff. Whatever you want to pick up, I'm here for it. Yeah. No, let me ask something. So, and maybe I'm going off in the weeds here. So I, I hear you talking about how religion, even the the weakest of religious systems seems to kind of just kick the booty of, of the humanist or secular systems. And in my head, I'm thinking about like, in this moment in our society right now, maybe across the globe, there is this sort of waking up, right? Um, people are beginning to no longer tolerate systems and their abuse of the collective. But I also think there's this line where not everybody can wake up either. Like in my mind, I think, okay, let's have everyone wake up and let's, 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 let's figure out ways that we let all humans not cause intentional harm, unnecessary trauma, but let's give them room to do anything else they want to be themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, you see a bunch of people jumping off of the workforce uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but I also sense that if everyone woke up, the entire system for bad collapses. Like, it's almost this game we have to play where 20% of us get to go, hey, it's really nice if we all woke up, but heaven forbid the other 80% really come along. I'm gonna, I, I like what you're saying. I'm, I'm going to go deeper. Please. I, I, think, I think what we need is not awakening, it's training. Because even, um, even the awake um, and my, I'm happy at the moment, but my basic brain chemistry is like so alive, I want to die. Like I, I'm, I'm very much the tortured soul category. Yeah. Um, 
And like life felt like a prison sentence for a very, very long time. And, and it still kind of does, but now it's like a really nice house arrest type situation. Um, and by that, <laughs> I mean, there's this, there's this inner sense of inevitability within me where I just, I just, I just gotta, I, I just have to, like, that's, that's how I'm built. Um, but I would say the general awake or the partially awake are miserable because it is hell realizing that things should be better, could be better, and not being able to do anything about it. And that is why we have such an that's what is one of the several reasons why we have such an ep epidemic of suicide. Um, more specific, um, social media um, is a more specific source of like adolescent um, suicidality. Um, and, you know, like reach out to us if anyone's having a hard time, you know, I can, I can follow through. Um, on that, but we also need to gently, frankly, um, talk about the hard things. And so um, that's why I tend to be very direct and provocative. And so like what we actually need is everyone needs to have the fortitude and the strength to follow through on our principles. Again, waking up is worthless if we cannot, like revolutionaries make poor plumbers. You know, it doesn't matter if we like throw apart all of the systems. It's like, if our toilets don't flush, that's not fun. I mean, I'm very aware of all the people who don't have, you know, don't have plumbing. Um, and so what I like the idea, and this is why um, Buckminster Fuller has one of my favorite quotes where he says, in order to make a system obsolete, don't break down the current system, just build a better alternative. And so this is like, in my entire ministry, and even as a world, as a professor, I taught religion for 13 years, then I became a chaplain. Um, I really love this idea. Uh, and this is, this is where we get into like art and invention and all of this beautiful thing. What my vision, I mean, I don't know if I'll have time to like dig into the actual um, application of it, but I believe that we can right here, right now, train people to be better humans. And the beautiful thing about it is who the, okay, who cares, I swear often, um, who cares whether you're, whether you're awake or not? What I, and, and in fact, um, I think of myself as a wellness engineer. And one of the craziest things about psychology is it is tremendously difficult to get someone to opt into their own fucking well-being. Like this is so insane. And, and I mean, we, we look at all these things like, like politics, you know, like trying to get people to vote for the things that are actually good for them, like trying to get people to use their tax dollars for the things that actually helps them. Nope. Like there are so, there's so much psychological backfire effect. And so I think of myself as like a civil engineer. I love the metaphor of civil engineering because like I don't understand the architectural and engineering principles that makes this house more or less earthquake proof, or I don't know the exact gradient of the road that it needs to be so that a car going 60 miles an hour can take the turn safely. And so what I think we need, and this is where I get into like infiltration and subversion and all of that stuff. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this right before the military, but I don't care. Um, I, there's a lot of me on the internet. So is I believe that we can, we can take the, everyone's container, I want to repurpose them. Like I want to take the stuff. And th this is my fundamental insight from 2013, 2013 is that we don't need to convert anyone to anything, whether it's wakefulness or secularism or whatever. 
I want to take exactly what they are and I want to like give them a better engine, you know, and give them better fuel. And I want the thing that they do to work better. And so my fundamental insight in 2013 that I'm that I've articulated a lot more, especially in my nonprofit work, is I think that we can take what people already are and turn up the volume so it becomes more effective. A really good example of this is the Salt Lake City Pride Parade. It is very interesting, and I've marched in the Pride Parade like four times. It's interesting that so when I when I marched with the humanists, there were not even dozens of us. There, you know, there was less than 20, I think. And you probably know who the largest group at the Salt Lake Pride Parade is. It's Mormons building bridges. And I think it is very interesting that a anti-LGBTQ institution, which I don't know anyone can argue, you know, the LDS church is, is like rabidly um, and and I, I use that technique, like I, I think it's an infection, like the, the leaders are kind of crazy with it. Um, the LDS leadership is rabidly anti-LGBTQ. And yet the largest supportive pro-pride, pro-LGBTQ group in Salt Lake are the Mormons. And this gets into this other whole question of like, what is our relationship to the institutions? There's a really great term called queer the center. And like, that's kind of my calling is I want to go as, as to infiltrate as deep as possible and then like break it productively. Um, and, but like, what relationship do we want to have of the, the institutions of which we're a part? So the institutions we belong to will be more powerful than any of us can ever be. And so as, as human beings, evolutionary speaking, one human being wandering in the wilderness, like unless you're Bear Girls or something, like we don't even rank with scavengers. You know, like we as a human, as a single human, we cannot even take on a pack of hyenas. Um, but we collectively can make the whole world extinct. I have, so you and I have debated a little bit. I don't think we've ever fully had the time to like go at it as much as it maybe deserves. But I want to introduce kind of Bill to this kind of longstanding debate that you and I have. And I have an analogy that I thought of today in preparation for this that I want to throw at you, Jared, and see what you think. You are much more than me willing to work within institutions, within belief structures, within the parameters that people have in order to induce change. And I see why, and I see the effectiveness, and I really see what you're doing with that. My, my argument is this, um, in, in modern times now, so let's talk about like not in the past, for where we are now and the problems mm -hmm. that we're facing now, um, and the threat that fundamentalism does for being able to do anything, just keeping humanity alive, just the threat that it is. I'm much more wary than you of working within institutions to induce change. I'm much more willing to um, kind of go in there with a bulldozer than you are. And the reason, so my analogy is this. So if you take something like slavery a couple hundred years ago, and it's a, it's a, it's a human, you know, across time and across culture, you know, experience slavery. And there are more slaves 
than any right yeah so it's still you know this is a human thing right that we do and let's talk and then if you talk specifically in america in the south there were there were people specifically christians and sometimes really good christians like christian theologians who would say you know what this just seems to be a natural thing that humans do let's keep the slavery because it just seems to be a human you know thing and these people don't seem to be as smart and literate as us from our you know kind of biased point of view let's just be really kind slavers and the money that we get will go to schools and the you know and they did a billion things to try to make slavery really better than um, kind of the worst forms of slavery. And this was the argument that we can just, if we, if we use slavery to make, you know, this kind of plantation paradise and um, we're kind masters and we take, we feed these people, we clothe these people well, then we can say that we're doing the best we can with this kind of institutional reality, right? And I see... Just a second. I'm not done with yet. I know you know where you're going, but I have to finish it because I thought it, I've been thinking about it all day. And so I see this happening so much with um, kind of like modern apologists and my issue with apologists, not that you are an apologist because I wouldn't put you in that category. I think you're doing a whole different game. But my issue with apologists is that so often they want to say, well, the word God actually means this. And second coming just means you know, this kind of inner transformation. And then this means this, and and they're trying to use the same words and the same structure to go somewhere else. And the problem that I see is that every time that they do that, it really just goes back and reinforces indirectly fundamentalism itself. It indirectly, if you're gonna use the word, for example, second coming to describe inner transformation, it kind of indirectly supports the person who will not recycle or do anything about the earth because Jesus is coming and Jesus is going to clean it all up. And so I see this happening all the time with apologists is that by working so much within these systems, it indirectly supports the very thing that they're trying to get away from, which is this idea that we don't really have to do anything with our earth because Jesus is going to come and clean it or, or, Islam or any kind of fundamentalism, right? And so anytime we're playing apologist in a system, I really do now believe that we are indirectly supporting the fundamentalism itself to the detriment of global humanity because between nihilism and fundamentalism, nihilism may be more painful and dangerous to go through personally, but fundamentalism is a much bigger threat to actual like existential risk of humanity. And so I think I weigh between the two, even though nihilism and breaking down systems is scary and there's suicide. I, I realize, I know that that's a reality. I'm much more willing to go that route because fundamentalism is so fundamentally scary to me. Okay. Now go. Now yeah, go. I, I apologize for interrupting. Um, the, amount of things you conflated are is really is really really interesting and i understand like like the provocative analogy and, and things like that and it's effective communication um a playful initial response that i heard is if you reform slavery enough you get the 40-hour work week in the gi bill um because we are like we are still in that system 
And one thing that's most important, um, like a framing that helps with grief and other things is, is don't let it go, pick it all up. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm pro universal basic income um, because like until, so the, the idea of slavery is that one human owns another, right? All of us live within that, you know, like because very, very few of us can keep our body alive without selling it. I mean, without someone else having ownership and granted, I mean, like I work at the prison, but one of one of the ironies of the prison is that inmates are taken care of at a higher rate than citizens. Um, And so as far as fundamentalism goes, and I, I think you very well may have your chance because like we may apocalyptically destroy civilization and then we will have our chance to just be nihilists and cannibalistic fans of whatever. Um, I think the actual most likely outcome are civilization islands owned by corporations and billionaires. Um, but it's when I taught world religions, I would differentiate what are denominational problems, what are religion problems, and what are human problems. And so the idea of having rigid thinking um, and um, overly simplistic um, assumptions, biases, that's that's human. Um, and one of the most sobering things is that, um, I mean, the I call them exceptional blind spots. It's very sobering that even if someone is trained to see their thinking errors, it doesn't necessarily map over. So for example, if you are a lawyer or a doctor or a scientist, you are incentivized in your professional life to see where you are wrong but then you go home and you never accept your partner disagreeing with you. Um, and so this is why I say the, the root of everything wrong in the world, again, I, I love grand sweeping statements, is pain and effort avoidance. And I don't, okay, so the world we live in is overwhelming institutions pushing us toward the collapse of civilization, right? Like, like that, that is literally um, where we are. The sobering thing is, I believe, and this, this is where part of our difference is, and we, we also have to embrace privilege, right? I mean, like I work easily within systems because they're made for me as like a white dude or whatever. So, I mean, I don't, I, I, take, that, I take that very seriously. Uh, But I think that even as we move toward the apocalypse, it is going to be the institutions um, that are going to have the best, like whoever has the most resources as the oceans rise are going to be our best chance of building the seawalls. And this is one reason why I want to be in the National Guard rather than the reserves, because the National Guard is the ones who are called up during disasters. Um, and so this is this is I, this is interesting. For example, like let's talk about fundamentalists. Um, with all their problems, like let's say, so fundamentalists are less likely to believe in climate change. Fundamentalists are much more likely to volunteer during disasters. And I think that we we need we need to look at that. So for example, I mean, whether we're talking about the Muslims or the Mormons, 
Um, it is going to be religious military corporate groups that are going to be distributing food and water after an earthquake. And so I don't know how you get around that. And so the part of the conversation, like what this is why, why I think the very best, it's similar to like collaborative tribalism. I think collaborative tribalism is a much better, more productive goal than like everyone love everyone, no matter what, that just doesn't work um, with how our brains work. Um, but this is why I think the very best thing that we can do, and this isn't like an optimistic shift um, as we wrap up or whatever, is I think that all of us can make our own worldviews better and then we can make our own communities better. We can make our own institutions better. So um, here's my so here's my one pushback, and then I'm going to bring in Bill and just see what he thinks. Um, so sticking with just kind of the experience of slavery in the South, my argument is that on the you can see that making slavery quote unquote better until it very closely resembles just, you know, what we have and just make consumer, slavery whatever, great again. Yeah. you know, you could make slavery better. And in the short term, that really may be the best kind of solution um, for keeping people just, you know, fed and just having human lives or whatnot, because breaking down slavery and doing something like the 13th Amendment for a while, I mean, it got worse before it got better, right? Like the whole system, like, you know, you, you slavery is illegal, but then, um, you know, you can't really work. And so you end up just kind of doing a different kind of slavery and, and it gets really, really messy in the short term. But then 200 years later, as much as racism is still a thing today and slavery is still a thing and slavery just as a concept just kind of exists everywhere. We can actually though step back and say, there was some project, pro there was some progress made by saying, we just can't do this as a system anymore, right? Just white people owning black people, right? And it was a long road, but we can, and it's not over, but no, we can I, say I, that some progress was made there. And so my argument, my argument here is that um, I think for secular spirituality, I think that the more apologists say, you know what, the foundations of this system is not going to get me to where we're trying to go, where the second coming means inner transformation. And maybe just going through that painful process of making a little bit worse before it gets better of just saying, you know what, there's this structure may just not take us to where we're wanting spirituality to go. I think that in the end, way past, you know, when we, when we're all dead and worm food 200, 300 years later, that may actually be, end up doing more as far as change, the kind of change that you're wanting. If we do the painful work of letting go of the systems that are not really going to allow us to get there. And in the short term, that's going to look worse, which it does right now. Like secular spirituality is just a mess right now. Like it is just a mess by saying we're going to do everything opposite of religion. Well, then you're not effective at all and you're not anything. And we're seeing that in secular spirituality. But I think in the long run, it may be better because some of these systems are not ever going to get you where you want to go because as many beautiful talks you can give about 
and I'm, this is not you, but the apologist game of as many beautiful talks you can do with scripture and with terms like the second coming and all of these things, um, you can go to really beautiful places, but by just, even just by using those books and using those terms, are you not then just supporting the system that is not letting you go where you're wanting to go? And when do you just cut it off and say, you know what, maybe the system isn't in the long run ever going to get us there because this fundamentalism temptation will just always be there. It's the trump card. Anyone can, if you're using the scriptures to go to these beautiful places in spirituality, because that's the system that you're working with, fundamentalism always has a trump's card. Well, Leviticus says this, and so it's the trump card, right? And I, I'm fear. I'm much more fearful of that. Um, and it makes me much more pessimistic, I think, than you are. I really envy your optimism in this space, which is why I really love your work. No, I'm, I'm actually not optimistic exactly. Um, I, my framing is more redeemed, what I call redeemed realism. And I, I want to hear from Bill, but I actually don't know that we're in a better place. Like, I, I don't think we are in a better place when it comes to slavery. Um, I think, and, and I'll, I do not know enough about this to communicate intelligently. Okay, like I completely acknowledge that. So I'm just like curious and open. I would not be surprised if the worst prisons are worse than the best plantations. I, I am not pro-slavery, um, I obviously, um, but I, I, and slavery has gone underground. You know, there's like sex trafficking, there's human trafficking, there's all of these things. I mean, I think many of our masks were made by the Uyghurs, you know, in China that are being genocided. I think um, the, que the question would be, if you were to roll the dice and say, would I rather be born in a roll of the dice in, in the plantation South 200 years ago, or would I rather be born as a black person today? Would you really say that there's no difference to those two? In, in would, or I mean, like where? Yeah. I mean, the, in South Carolina, I mean, so, yeah. John, John Rawls' Vow of Ignorance right there. Um, we're, you're, you're looking at the experience of black people in the United States rather than slavery, which is what we were talking about. Yeah, I'm more I'm wanting to focus on that because that's one thing where we said we we stopped this certain kind of practice because we realized as good as you could get plantations, it was built on a faulty system. I'm saying we haven't like our our capitalistic structure. There's a huge prostitution ring related to the Super Bowl. Um, like, again, I would want to research this more, but my understanding is that there are literally more slaves now than at the height of the transatlantic um, slave trade. So like we can talk about a story. And so this is what I'm why I'm trying to what I'm trying to push for is this whole like pick it all up, um, you know, rather than like looking at little pieces of something because um, it's like even the question of like, what is it like to be black in America? I mean, like you and I can literally not talk intelligently about that. Um, one thing I really loved about my divinity experience is um, my divinity school is in Minneapolis. And so it is ground zero for like all the Black Lives Matter stuff. Like my trauma, suffering and care chaplain was George Floyd's chaplain. Like that is wild. Like like he he ministered to George Floyd's family. Um, so it's like the underlying patterns, my, my super succinct answer to your this back and forth is we just don't have 
anything else other than stories. Like we as human beings, like we have stories embedded in institutions. And so maybe post-apocalypse, we have like little tribes of whatever. Um, but we, and this, I think that there is power in maintaining that conversation because we as humans can only function associatively. And so like we are always understanding the new in reference to what already exists. And so now I think like you, like, you know, that I have like radical replacements as much like more than most, but I think again, no matter what we do, we are always in reference to what already is. And so I think it is more accountable and responsible to say, this is what we're trying to do. And this is how we are in relationship to slavery, um, rather than like, we are getting rid of slavery, um, which again, like I, I think with radical socialism and um, I mean, I think Western Europe as racist as, racist as it is, like it has really, really good um, social support structures, you know, which, so I, I'm taking the idea of slavery and I'm breaking it all the way down to this question of how do we care for each other as human beings? And like, that's the conversation. And so for me, what whatever gets us there to this like how can we so for example most religious like the black panthers had amazing community like they were a community activist group um there's the whole communism question but for me it's like how do we take care of each other and i think for all of its problems like mormonism like the lds church takes care of people better than broader United States social structures, you know? All right. Let me, let me chime in. I, I, I hesitate only because that was such an intelligent conversation and two positions that I'm going to wade in and try to maybe speak to both of those that I don't, I'm afraid I'm not going to do so intelligibly. So um, let me put up a little great because this is a place where like debate is like, like we're oh, I could be it, ten hours here, and this is so, almost so, as good as making it's love. It's so fun to be with other people that like are <laughs> e like the egos and emotion is not on yeah. the line. Like we really are trying to yeah. How do we make a better other. place? Yeah. Somebody put this comment up. It said, you know, if it collapses, we will find a way to rebuild it with more humanity. And let me say, I'm as you know, Britt, I'd love to tear all these unhealthy systems down. I'm a fan of that. I want to try that. I want to see what happens. But I almost know what happens, which is. This isn't true, that if it collapses, we find a way to rebuild it with more humanity. No, the moment there is a vacuum of power, a vacuum of leadership, the most ruthless people tend to take uh, control, which means that anytime you break a system down, at least immediately, the system that replaces it is usually something more uh, hunter-gatherer, something more us versus them, something more of uh, punishments and justice and, uh, you know, traits that tend to pick sides and then with brutal force enforce the rules. So as Jared's saying, the best we might be able to get to is to just ever so subtly, gently nudge the current systems to be better and better because I'm, I'm deeply afraid just as we saw, you know, um, the storming the Capitol, there are certain kinds of people, as Jared pointed out, that there are certain kinds of folks who show up in tragedy to dish out the uh, the rations and the and the clean water. Um, 
if that storming the Capitol had been 10% angrier and 10% larger, uh, heavens forbid what might have happened that day and where it might have led. Um, obviously, we live in a country and we live in 2022 where there's a modern military. But what people don't realize is even in that military, there are people on various sides of the debate. And you don't know whether the guy to your right is going to turn against you because he believes in the conspiracy theories or irrational views that are being promoted. And so I'm deeply afraid. I'm a guy who wants to break systems down and start over. And I am scared to death of what that might look like. Yeah, really, really quick comment. I'm not just advocating for the little nudges. I mean, quite the contrary. And some other time we can talk about what I'm actually advocating. Um, but I think it is this messy, messy, complex, expensive structure that allows for utopias. Like that, that's the cool thing is we is that uh, real though can we ever get to a utopia can we ever get to the ideal like it seems well, impossible right i'm gonna work on it okay. um it, what, what like what i'm saying something i'm totally serious what I, what i'm saying is that it is within this problematic structure of resource allocation and hierarchical you know like high institutional um structure that allows people to amass enough resources or enough collective labor to build something like genuinely like blissful, like even libraries, like libraries are amazing things, you know, where, or, I mean, again, I'm, I'm still hung up on this prison thing because like we just built a billion dollar new prison in Utah and it's, it's a good facility. I mean, like the, I mean, it's a, like the facility itself is well done. Now policy procedure staffing and things like that, we're in a rough spot at the moment. Um, but again, I'm really fascinated by how we invest in things. And it breaks my heart that in the United States currently, we invest so much money in the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex. Like, why, why do we do that? You know, um, but again, at the same time, it is within these power structures where we can say, well, I'm going to build a community center. Whereas, um, think about a war zone, you just, I mean, the, the best you can do sometimes is share a phone charger um, in the base, you know, in the subway station and like hope that you can get to collect some water um, without getting bombed. Like it's, I mean, it it's so, and then I'm interested in like, you know, Solzhenitsyn and um, Viktor Frankl and stuff like this. and, and like in my small way, I haven't, this is why I have enjoyed working at the extremes of the human experience, like currently end of life, death, tragedy, prison, that kind of thing. I, I want to go a lot more, you know, I want to go like, anyway, we could talk about this some other time, but it's like the way we human beings behave at scale is really depressingly predictable. Um, and we are, in the United States, we are a sneeze away from militarization, like a military state. Like if if anything gets like tips a tiny bit, boom, that's gonna happen. And so, you know, it, there is it, it brings me to this idea that, um, which is the, this is the experiment that no one knows the answer to, which is anytime we have a big kind of power structure and you're talking about that, 
it creates a kind of zeal in us as humans when you when you're all believing something and working something for something and um, even something like a church with like tithing and all of a sudden you have this pool of resources and the weird benefit is that even though there's you know corruption or the beliefs are super weird or whatever it is you can get a, an increase of 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 wellness and and resources for people and the in the question that i think that we're starting to ask that no one truly, we can guess, but no one truly knows the answer to this question is whether we can build structures without that level of zeal, which usually only comes with some kind of supernatural superstructure. Can we build, you know, something like humanism or a, a, a spiritual YMCA or, you know, there's, I hear, I look at examples all the time of people trying to do this and then, but without the threat of hell, people don't donate 10%. So then how do we, can you ever really get to the point? And I, I don't, I hear people debate it all the time, but I've never, I don't think anyone truly knows whether we as humans are capable of, of systems that don't um, that produce mm. that level of, of of resource and community and ritual and all these things without some weird supernatural beliefs. Can we even do it? It's never mm. been really, really done before. Um, the military is an interesting example, but but even then you have kind of, I don't know. What do you think about that, Jaren? I mean, the military is already benefiting from intersect, you know, intersecting Venn diagram ideologies. Um, I mean, and we we need to look at the whole world. There's a book called Big Gods, you know, that that argues about the power of you know these mono, monotheistic beliefs. And we have to remember that we in this conversation are in the weird, the weird problem. You know, the Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. Um, if listeners aren't aware, and I want to say like how much I. I respect um, Yubra. I hope that no listeners think that. Oh know, no, we'll keep it. we'll keep debating till we die. You and I. I I, I love it, but I, I'm I'm very you know I deeply respectful and open to other other perspectives. I just think that we have to really take seriously the whole the whole picture, and I mean I I think it's called like the presentist fallacy where we assume that the age in which we live is the most important age ever because we're in it. Um, but that's actually true of us. Like we, in 2022, we have enough technology, communication, infrastructure um, to, we, we, we could actually, we can actually do powerful, powerful, powerful good. Um, I don't, like change does not happen until floods hit the penthouse um, is one way that I think about it. Like, I don't, I don't think that we are going to make, like, we're, we're moving toward it with like fits and starts, but I really believe that when it comes time to save civilization, it will still be um, the like overwhelmingly powerful multinational military. Cause like that's where the billions and billions of dollars are, you know, and the millions and millions of people. And so like my, my constructive recommendation, you know, is to be the best member of the system that you can be. I mean, like all of us are part of systems and I love the imaginative exercise of, I mean, like one of the playful thought exercises that I'm actively working on in my own projects 
is if you had to single-handedly rebuild civilization, what would it look like? I think that's a really fun conversation, you know, and we, we need that. Um, and this is, we actually don't understand, we cannot anticipate what we would, how we would behave in the zombie apocalypse or in an apocalypse type situation. And what I, what I am advocating for and trying to build in my own work is I want to help people no matter what they believe in foster the very healthiest pro-social aspects of their worldview. So I'm not, I don't have an agenda of like breaking people down or like moving them away from religion or making them secular or whatever. Um, Cause again, it's all ideology. It's ideology all the way down. And so whether you're like a common communist or socialist or capitalist or, or whatever, um, like we are so embedded in the cultural ideologies of which we're a part like let's let's have that conversation better and i think the most important thing that we can do i joke about raising kids as apocalypse ninjas but i think the best thing that we as individuals can do is and what this podcast is doing is we can engage thoughtfully and compassionately around the systems of which we are a part and so different systems will allow for different levels of flexibility like one other thing that we need to be thinking about um, one of my more sobering summaries I've heard is liberals have good ideas and conservatives get shit done. And like one very interesting thing is not to pick up too many things. That, well, I do. Um, I think functionally the military, for example, is better at um, racial integration than like these progressive corporate, these progressive corporations, because like progressive corporations, like tech companies and things, they want to be thought of as diverse, whereas the military doesn't have any choice. Like with recruitment and stuff, they have to draw so much from such a broad range that like now granted there is racism, sexism, all of that stuff in the military. But if a black lesbian um, is promoted to colonel, you know, she is, she has all of that because the military is a relentless meritocracy. And so like, if you get up there, you're going to get those benefits. So again, it's, it's very, very interesting. And I think one thing I need to be, we, I, one thing I think we need to be very careful of in these conversations is there's a seductive allure of performance. You know, we, we want, we want to perform that nice story. Um, whereas it's like face the hard truths early. So when you're saying like, let's, let's break it all down. Yes. Like, or let's at least spin that all the way out. You know what? Yeah. Cause my concern there is that, um, is that to get something like the military to even exist, even though it's improving in all these ways, that's really interesting is that you almost, you do have to have a belief that, America is the best, right? America becomes a, a kind of God in order for that system to even be in place. And so something like Christianity does, you can list all the unbelievable social work that it does, um, but then it's under the umbrella of some ideas that are also pretty damaging to humanity. And so it's, it's, it's tough. And I think about this a lot because how much of that umbrella uh, structure of beliefs are you willing to put up with in order to get the benefits that lie underneath it? Sometimes I'm willing to like, okay, like I'll go, 
I'll go with it because there's enough here to work with. And, but there has to be a limit to like, you know what, the umbrella of beliefs, even though the good, there seems to be good things underneath, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not going to take us to where we need to go in modern society. There has to be a limit to it. For me, I feel like there's a little bit more of a limit to, I'm not willing to put up with these, this umbrella of beliefs because it's not ever going to get us to where we need to go to survive. I'm, I hear you. I'm going to disagree. I don't think, I don't think you need to believe in patriotism to have the military. I think you need to believe in the military to have the military. Like, and this is like corporate culture, you know, like, like each institution has its own mythology. And I think like all you need to believe in to be a part of an organization is that organization. And like, what are the stories around that? Like, why are you serving? I mean, I think I think the military is powerful mostly because we have invested so absurdly in it. You, you know, like we we invest a tremendous amount of money. We combine incentives. Yeah, but we do that because of some beliefs that we have. You don't think so? Well, I mean, like, yes and no, but it's more in order of like order of operations and priority. Um, I mean, I think that we mostly make the military so absurdly big is because we want the ability to um, enforce our like worldview and re- protect our, re- I, like, I mean, it's, now we're getting into a, a bit of a rabbit hole as far as like the United States is like a genocidal, imperialistic, um, institu- like worldview, right? Um, I mean, what we like, we tried to overflow Ecuador because of bananas or something. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Like we, we are incredibly imperialistic. And so I think the worldview around the military is like, we deserve to stick ourselves in places where we think where we're justified or whatever. Um, but what I'm, what I'm talking about specifically is what makes them, what's make, what makes the military powerful. So there's a question of like, what is the military for, which could be all sorts of different things. Um, I mean, I think the fundamental mythology of the military is that we need to defend ourselves against the bad guys. But that that can be framed in all sorts, you know, in all sorts of ways. I do think, though, if you took away some of the narratives about imperialism and um, manifest destiny and missionary and Christianity, if you took away some of those kind of gods, in some sense you wouldn't have the kind of money that we're pouring into it as we do. Well, there's a parallel between military and sports um, and, and sports are play war. Um, so like an evolutionarily, they, they map and they access the same thing. So like the, the military is so like gets so much money because the basic idea is if we do not invest in this, we will die. So like what what are all of the all of the narratives that hold up that idea of like if we do not invest in this we will die and like why are we in the United States so disproportionately militant I mean that's its own interesting question um, but I like I guess the the take home message that I would emphasize is it's not just the one thing you know we, we can't say well it's because of like this thread of narrative or ideology that makes something so powerful like it's the entire culture that makes it so powerful like what like what justifies the investment but um i'd love 
to hear where you know where you want to kind of take and, and wrap this up in a nice bow for now. Bill, uh, I'm not going to wade in because I'm I'm no. <laughs> I'm I'm at the point where I I recognize that all of this is precarious and we may fight to make things better and we may end up with something we don't like. And, yeah. and so I think these conversations are beautiful in that we ought to consider all these sides that are being spoken of and really wade carefully into what we want to build for a future. Yeah. I do think how I would wrap this up and then maybe I'll ask you one more question and then we'll, we'll end for today, but we'll have you on another time. Um, I think how I would wrap this up is the majority of our audience right now um, are non-believers, agnostic, atheist, uh, deconstructed from something, right? That's the majority of who is listening to this conversation. So I'd kind of like to just like reframe this. So what does that mean for this particular group of people? And I think this group of people, myself included, there's a tendency because there's pain and there's religious trauma and there's um, all these kinds of issues that are wrapped up into um a group of people that have experienced some level of, of, of pain due to the, the spiritual systems that they were a part of, that there's a tendency to um, just want to do the opposite or break down the whole thing, or I don't need any of that or any, you know, this kind of thing. And something that I've come around in is that, you know, I, I became kind of a leftist liberal burn it to the ground by like 14, right? I was just like, this is all so ridiculous. We've got to do it better. I'd <laughs> be able to do it better than this. Just burn it all down, right? And I'm young and I'm 14 and I'm very left-wing by then. Um, and by 16, you know, I, I got involved in some political things. This is very like just emotional and very like John Lennon, imagine kind of stuff, right? And then as I got older, and some people say this, that, you know, if you're not liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. And if you're not more conservative as an adult, you don't have a head. And for me, that quote is a little bit true in the sense that I realized, you know, by studying history and really trying to understand human nature, that there is wisdom in structures, because any time that you get a group of humans together and it's chaos and entropy and we're trying to communicate, but words um, mean different things, to different people. I mean, it's just so incredibly complex that any time you have a system that lasts generation and after generation or sometimes thousands of years, it's not something to be trifled with. And so there's this quote from Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson says, if you... Um, are not smart and you don't know how to recreate the world, um, you should be conservative. And that's not saying that conservative people are dumb. It's just saying that unless you really are sure that you're going to be doing this better, there is wisdom in the patterns. There's wisdom in the archetypes. There's wisdom in the systems. There's wisdom in how things have been structured before that we need to work with. Otherwise we don't realize how quickly um, it just diverts into chaos and then chaos, as Bill says, just turns into some kind of anarchy, just goes right into some kind of really bad um, hole of power that just invites the worst kind of dictator. Anyway, and so I do think for this kind of group, how I tie this up is we need to be careful 
at um, how how willing we are sometimes in kind of post deconstruction post uh, faith deconstruction circles to just burn everything to the ground. Um, and I think that a little bit more thought um, has really led both Bill and I to say we, we need to be really careful about um, how we do that because we don't have any promise that it's going to be any better unless we really, really think about it and take it seriously. That's how I would wrap that up. Bill? Jared, where can folks, if they want to kind of follow you or, or kind of hear more about what you think about things, where can people kind of see you playing in the sandbox of talking some of these things out? Um, the Life Devoted is my YouTube channel. Um, and then olaminstitute.org is my nonprofit. And there's a, a contact thing there. But um, I'm, you know, having just graduated and things like that, I will be having a lot more conversations. But um, that's the olaminstitute.org that you can, um, that's a good way to contact me. Cool. Sweet. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to add, Britt. Okay. I just want to do, can we just, we didn't have time to go into it today, Jared. Um, but we'll, so we'll have you on another time when you're really working on this project, hopefully. Um, you and I have been talking for years now. Um, and Bill and I say this almost every podcast is like, if, why doesn't someone just like make the secular religion? Like I'll show up, like I'll do all the things, like someone just needs to make it and I don't have time. And every time Bill says that, I say, I got this friend named Jared Anderson and he's building it. <laughs> I don't know. I hope it's a, he, you know, if you build it, they will come, but he's building something. And so we'll go into that more in depth um, next time we have you on, Jared. But can you leave us with a little teaser? If you could do a couple minute elevator pitch on what you're trying to build, because I'm super interested in this project you have. I'm, I'm so excited. So uh, I just recently articulated all of this and the program is called The Life Devoted. And the fundamental insight, like why this is different than anything else, is because it's not something you join exactly it joins you like like one of the pitches is don't join like don't join our program our program joins you because the one of the fundamental paradoxes of um even the wellness industry is like we are so saturated by the consumerist death cult um which is my shorthand for like you need to buy crap and go into debt to buy crap and like one of the most um poignant ironies is that in our culture, we sell shit by making people feel terrible about themselves. Like that, that is, that is the function of our economy right now. Um, and so what I'm, what I'm just like the life devoted is something where you can engage in it at every level you possibly want. So the life devoted is going to be a workplace wellness program. It's going to be an app. It's going to be a literal role-playing game. It's going to be a community center, and it's going to be a life monastery. And so it's this comprehensive, it's functionally a paramilitary wellness organization. Um, but the, the important thing about it is that it works at every single level. Um, like one flaw of these like really rigorous institutions like the military is you they only Catholicism is complicated and has some benefits because it's just so big and so old it has to let anything in 
Um, but like for a new organization, usually you have to be like rigorous and inflexible and powerful often, or you can be like really idealistic, but not very potent. So what I'm doing with the life devoted is I'm functionally pouring like progressive ideas into a conservative structure where people can opt. So it has this beautiful level of organization, including like fun uniforms and ranks and all of this stuff. But the important thing is that people can opt into it at any level from like wearing a little pin that inspires you to remember your values or whatever, um, to literally going to a monastery. Like, like I, I feel pretty confident that within, within five years, um, like I will have a monastery being built. Um, what I want to do in the next few years is buy an old church somewhere in this area, gut it and rebuild it as a community center. Um, so the, the very succinct way of putting it is I think that we need a cohesive narrative and ideology that can be personalized and adapted to a very, very broad um, range of levels of engagement. So the coherent thing is like the life devoted. And this, it's a playful name because it begs the question, devoted to what? And the answer to that is, I don't know that I have one of my medallions handy, um, but that's the exact question is like, exactly. So it's this conversation where it's like, what are you devoted? So here, here's a really great way to end this segment. Um, I am actively on call at the hospital, which is why we've been kind of pushing this along. And I think I think this will feel good in your body. Are you ready? Here's my here's my pitch. What is it like to be in your brain and your body? What do you want to do about it? What do you need? Like, doesn't that just feel like relaxing? Because like that it's I pivot and turn everything around. And this is what I mean by the program joins you. It's this conversation of tell me what this is like. Tell me what it's like to be you. And functionally, I'm reverse engineering and popularizing ministry training, which is we can put that aside as well. And then like, what do you what do you want to do? But that like mentorship rigorous conversation, what do you want to do? And then what resources do you need to get there? So that in essence is, is the program, but it has that mythology and that rigor and the excitement. And um, the life devoted role-playing game is one of the things that I'm working on the best. And the, the plot twist is the role-playing game and the life training program are the same. So you can move fluidly and uh, a close peril to this right now is like Comic-Con culture um, where currently, and this, this is new in large part of because, because of Disney, <clears throat> like Disney and the Marvel, Marvel movies and everything. We are in a place where people are like, I want to dress up as Thor. And <clears throat> a couple decades ago, it'd be like, let's dress up as Thor. Whereas in large part because of the Marvel movies, because we are seeing them, we're seeing Chris Hemsworth um, we are motivated to say, I'm going to learn martial arts in order to cosplay this character. I am going to hit the gym for six months in order to cosplay this character. And sports is similar in different ways, but <clears throat> I think fandom, sorry, is a really great parallel. Okay, so th this is a great way of um, summarizing. I am creating a reality fandom. 
I am trying to make people fans of themselves and their own life. Because one of the evolutionary problems is that we get more excited about distraction and entertainment than we do about actual rigorous engagement. So I am like bringing the two together so that investing in, and this is gamification, there's a whole science to it. Um, what I'm doing is I'm having people discern their own ideals and then providing the structure and the support to motivate them toward those ideals while creating a huge community of individualized coherence. We can unpack that next time. But the well, I just wanted to leave a little teaser because I want people to know that all of this study that you're doing on systems and human nature and religions, um, I, I'm really excited to see you really put this baby together, which is a culmination of all the study that you've been doing and all these conversations that we've had. And I've seen you tinker around with things um, in this in this program that you're building for years. And I just am so excited to see how it comes together. So we'll leave that as a little teaser um, for next time. And we'll, we'll be super, we're gonna unpack all of that. And I'm gonna ask you all the things and we'll bring up all the art that is just so beautiful. Um, that you've been working on for years, and we'll do that next time. Thanks, all. Bill? Thanks a bunch, Jared. Okay, have a great right. day, guys. That's it. Thank you. Right. Take Bye. it easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.